Bow your heads. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, it uh, truly blows me away that uh, the creator of the world, the sustainer of life, uh, that you would want something to do with us, that you love what you created, that you are so hungry to redeem people. So God, for all the things you're doing all over the world today uh, that we will never hear about, we just say thank you. Uh, Thank you that we don't have to worry about you being too busy uh, to be fully present here in this place. Uh, You were here. And my prayer, God, is that through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit that uh, today that we will become less and that Jesus will become more. Uh, that you will fill us with more of Jesus, that you will place him in front of us in a way that is so intriguing, enticing, inviting, that there's no way we could say no to going into a deeper uh, life and covenant with him. So uh, may the words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, to our God and our Redeemer. It's to you we pray and the church said, amen. Hey, good morning. It's great being with you today. I want to welcome all the guests. I saw a lot of faces this morning I've never seen before. So if you're looking for a new church home, we're glad you're here. We we would love to get to know you, to pray for you. If you're passing through town, safe travels wherever you're going. Um, There are churches meeting all over the world today, and many of them will open up, or uh, many of them have been formed by their books of the Bible that mean more to them to others. I mean, we're we're a church. There are certain passages that have formed our theology and our convictions over the years, decades, centuries, maybe more than other places in the Bible. There are churches today who have formed themselves on a place like Acts 2, and they come away with that, with this, this conviction about water baptism immersion. And there are other churches throughout the world who read Acts 2, and they come away with this deep conviction about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And there, there are so many different ways to come to Scripture, to hear Scripture, to hear of God. And so we're in a study right now where this isn't about like one church versus another church or churches of Christ and Baptists and what's different. It's, it's about how big and vast God is. There's so much to Him. And, and I just don't want to miss out on any way God wants to teach us and open up Scripture to come to life to us. Churches all over the world today probably uh, read the Great Commission. They want to take it seriously. In Matthew 28, Jesus says you go into the world and you make disciples of all nations. And if we're not careful, what happens is we read the Great Commission and we walk away thinking uh, that maybe it says, like, go into the world and just be really nice to people and don't offend others because Jesus died for you to be cordial and to not make enemies or to go into the world and try to place the Jesus bumper sticker on your car or... Uh, wear things that make you look more Christian. If we're not careful, we can read the Great Commission and come away with it thinking it's the great suggestion, that it's maybe something you do instead of something Jesus commands us to do. You go into the world and you make disciples of all nations. Um, The church is at its best when it cooperates with God to spread His love, His forgiveness, and His mercy And I want to stand in front of people week after week, letting people know that you may never be someone who stands up on a stage like me and preaches a sermon or writes a book or teaches a class or sits down with someone who doesn't know Jesus and walks them through the story of Jesus to the point where they give their life to Christ. But whoever you are, if you've been touched by God and redeemed by God, you have a story to tell. 
And that the power of God is alive in you, no matter who you are, to help introduce somebody to Jesus by words you say, by the kindness of your life, by the servant heart that you have. That God wants to use what God saves. There's a statement uh, that we often know, you know, that it's the best thing since sliced bread. Sliced bread was invented in 1910. Uh, and did you know, and I wonder, like, uh, like, if it was invented in 1910, what did people say before 1910? It was the best thing since what, you know? Like, it was the best thing since aqueducts, you know, or the best thing since the printing press. I don't know what they said then, all right? But we say the best thing since sliced bread. But did you know it was invented in 1910, but for 15 years, nobody bought it? The, the idea never took off until Wonder, Wonder Bread, took a hold of it, heard about sliced bread, wanted to do something with like promoting sliced bread. So they took this idea of sliced bread and they came up with these ideas and strategies on how to tell the story and how to get the word out and the rest is history. It's the marketing guru, Seth Godin, who talks about how ideas spread. And one thing he says is that if any idea, a story is going to spread, it boils down to one word, and the one word is remarkable. It has to be remarkable. Which if you boil down the word of remarkable to its simplest form, what it means is, is it worthy to make a remark about? Because today, uh, you live in a world, we live in a world where there's so much consumerism. There's so many choices you can make of what you're going to invest in, what story you want to invest in, and there's less time. So sometimes we're just reaching for whatever it is that can bring a little bit of fulfillment and meaning. We have little time to make choices. But the thing in life today that is talked about is the thing that spreads. Think about how Uber and Airbnb have taken off. I, maybe you've seen them. I have not seen commercials about Uber or Airbnb. Yet these ideas take off, and they take off because they believe that if someone experiences what we have to offer, they're going to tell their friends and their friends, and they're going to post it on Facebook and Twitter, and the idea is going to spread, and it works. The thing that is talked about is the thing that spreads. And if people see something that is remarkable, they want to invest in it. So do we believe that Jesus is so remarkable that he's worthy to make some remarks about in our lives and to live it in a way where people want to get in on it? So we're in this series. If you'll go to that next slide, what we're going to do is starting last week and four more weeks after this is I want to talk about just the different strands of of Christian thought, how we have become who we are. Um, So today I want to talk some about the holiness tradition in Bible class this morning. You Uh, Hopefully some of you were there and you heard some of our elders talk about what I preached about last week. And it's a book Richard Foster wrote about spiritual uh, formation and transformation and these streams of Christian thought. And I think this is really important because for any church, we become who we are because we're being led by God. And there are convictions that are leading us there. But sometimes we become who we are because we know what we don't want to be. Right? So we know we want to be a church that spreads Jesus and lifts up Jesus, but sometimes, and I'm not just talking about Sycamore View, sometimes we aren't sure what to do about caring for the poor or the marginalized, or we're not sure what we do about the Holy Spirit and how we come to a working understanding of who the Spirit is or what does the contemplative life mean. So each one of these is rooted in the Bible and forms and shapes us, whether it's something we have embraced or something we just haven't really known what to do with. So it's called Streams. Because sometimes we can lock into a stream. And I just don't want you to get stuck in one stream that you never venture into another stream to learn something else about the heart of God, the personality of God, the nature of God. 
And one thing I want to present in front of you over the next few weeks is that God is always inviting us into deeper places to search out His heart, to know His ways. So last week we talked about the evangelical tradition, which I helped us uh, summarize and put a definition on what it means, the evangelical tradition even means. It's it's people who are Bible-based, who want others to know about Jesus. It's people who believe in a, a conversion experience. They want people to, to live into that. And one thing we did at the end of the service, if we go to that picture, what we did is there was a table right up here with little candles, and we've done this before, but I, I just encourage you, like, do you know someone in your life who, you need, who, who you're begging for the light of God to shine in their life, the, the light of God to help point them closer to Jesus? It could be because someone isn't in a relationship with Jesus, or maybe they, they are, but they've kind of lost their way. And it's one of those moments where, I mean, I can't really manipulate it. We just see what God does, but almost every single candle was lit. Uh, and then that afternoon, I'm at the house lounging around, and I get a text message from my friend Mike Freeman. I want to invite him to come and join us. You get, yeah, bring that microphone up here. If you'll put Mike on the mic. Mike on the mic. How, how about that for a point? <clears throat> All right, dude, so, so let, let, me, uh, let me just ask this, man. Um, you, you were here last Sunday with your, your wife and your kid. What inspired you that morning to do something about what what happened in our worship service um i mainly i guess it was just the it was the light in the candles because uh, you said it didn't have to be for you it could be for someone else and immediately once he said that i immediately thought about my dad so uh and so i we, i had been in prayer with him for quite some time you know um just about the faith and stop me if i'm going too far because i know you're good, man. So, okay. You're good. <laughs> so, I have been engaging my father for quite some time uh, about Christ. Uh, and he had been telling me, you know, I think I was baptized. I might have been baptized. I'm not sure. But after leaving service last Sunday, I went to his house on Father's Day. And I talked to him again about it. And this was the first time he ever told me he had never given his life to Christ. He had never been baptized. So, um so the candles, praying for, you know, the other person, lighting that candle for my father, that is what inspired me to go and preach the gospel to him last Sunday, Father's Day. But so. that I thought it was so cool that God worked in your life on Father's Day Amen. to Amen. share Jesus with your dad. Amen. Um, so you shoot me a text, and you said, hey, man, I, I think my dad wants to be baptized tomorrow. Uh, how do I go about this? Do I need to reserve the church or, or uh, can we come up? Are you busy? And, and I was like, man, Monday, we have a lot of meetings on Monday. It's not a good day for us. And I, I'm just joking, man. I was, like, I was like, yeah, of course, man, you tell me the time and you come. And, and sure enough, you guys came and our staff was able to join up here and watch your father uh, be baptized into Christ. And we, and we celebrate that with you and your family. It's wonderful. Uh, let me ask you this, man, because I think it's a story that will connect with some people because I, w- I would hope there's some folks here who are hearing this saying, my goodness, I, I know someone really close to me and they aren't in a relationship with Jesus and how does God want to use me to help speak to them? What were obstacles you faced? So when you, when you left church last Sunday and you felt maybe the prompting of God to go and initiate this conversation with your dad, what were some obstacles in your mind and your heart uh, that, that, you faced, that you had to overcome? Well, one in particular is I'm the son. I'm trying to preach the gospel to my father. So that in itself was, I guess, difficult just because I'm used, you know, I've learned from my father my entire life. So then me trying to teach him about the goodness of Christ, 
it was just, that was part of a roadblock, and I think it was all mental, ultimately. But not only that, we haven't been on the best of terms. So that was... That was a roadblock. But uh, Christ had other plans in mind. So, so ultimately, despite my emotions, despite the way I felt, stepped up, and uh, Christ, you know, ultimately he did his thing. It was the Holy Spirit. It had nothing to do with me. I had to take myself completely out of the equation. You do what God tells you to do when he tells you to do it because it is a matter of life and death, literally. We, we, uh, man, we praise God for your obedience, and we got to celebrate with, uh, with you. Uh, you just pretty much preached my sermon for me, so <laughs> come on, we stand and sing. Man, I'm not trying to make light of this moment. We were also here on a Monday when you baptized your brother a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Mike's a Memphis yeah. police officer, and it was, this one was, was not as uh, chaotic as the last one because the radio's going off as you're baptizing yeah. your brother a few years ago saying, hey, Mike, we're on our way to Wolf Chase. Somebody stole the car. We need you to come help us. And you're like trying to get your brother down so you can go <laughs> join your team. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, man, we praise God for you, your dad, and continue to celebrate with your family. Can we thank God again for... We love you, man. So proud of you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Hey, uh, boy, how do you follow that? Um, open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1. I want to talk just a little bit about holiness. And I confessed to Kip when we got together Monday to, to plan worship. I, I, I've struggled with this one for a few weeks because the word holy or holiness is a word that doesn't seem to be in a lot of our like spiritual vocabulary much anymore, almost like the word sin, and maybe there's some other words we just don't use as much. And we're not really sure what to do with these words, or the way these words are used now, it's like in a negative way, like the, you know, holier than thou, or holy rollers, or uh, when some people think holy or holiness, they think about uh, people who are judgmental, like the Pharisees. The Pharisees cared a lot about holiness. Uh, let me, let me see if we can, uh, let's just see where, where God takes us. Look in First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16, it says this. So prepare your minds for, an act, for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. All right, so is it possible? Like becoming holy, is it something that's even possible? Uh, Because Jesus sometimes says things like, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And here it's be holy as your heavenly father is is holy. Be holy as God is holy. Is it even possible? and I don't think the Holy Spirit would encourage somebody to say something that he doesn't want us to live into. And I don't want us to settle for anything less than what God asks for. 
So I want you to have a better understanding today of what the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of God, what it means. I do want you to notice in 1 Peter 1, one thing he says in verse 15 is, uh, or verse 14 is, like, don't slip back into your old ways. Because this became a, a teaching, especially in the, with these people in the early church, because there were masses coming to Jesus, sometimes within one event or within a very short season. Masses coming to Jesus. Yet they're in a pluralistic culture. They're in cities full of a lot of immorality. And it was easy for them to slip back into their old ways. This happens today. Maybe you've heard me talk before. I mean, down at 201 Poplar, the famous jail here in Memphis, 66% of the inmates there right now, this is at least their sixth time to be there. So why are they released from bondage and then make choices to go right back in? Uh, This year, there will be about a million Americans who have heart bypass surgery in which doctors will tell them and ask them to change their diets, change the way they exercise, and 90% of them will go back to the same habits they had before their surgery. Only 10% will make the changes. How many times have you known someone who has been in a sexually abusive or physical abuse or emotionally abusive relationship, and they get out of it, and then they end up back in a relationship where the same things happen? And you see the people of God in Exodus, they're released from bondage after over 400 years of slavery. And in the desert, do you remember what they said multiple times? Uh, Maybe we should just go back to Egypt. Because we aren't really sure what freedom looks like. And though it wasn't great, we knew that food was coming when we were in bondage. Let's just go back there. Instead of going into what God plans for us. What does it say about God? That he thinks his holiness is worth sharing. That God offers something, no other God, though God is the only God, but no other God that has been worshipped or adored or people have given their, their allegiance to, God offers something that no other God does. Most, most gods that you read about through the, throughout the history of the world, and even today, it's about you knowing who they are and have a knowledge of them, but it's not like this relationship. It's not a God who wants to dispense its goodness and faithfulness upon whoever is following that God. But for our God and all of his holiness decides to dispense it, to share it, to invite people to become part of it. When I was 19 years old, God had been stirring in my heart. I was really hungering to know the Lord better. And I remember reading this book by J.I. Packer, the scholar, and it was a book on holiness. And he had this definition of holiness that stuck with me since the age of 19. And his definition of holiness was this, to be separated and set apart for God, consecrated, and made over to him. That the holy life, pursuing holiness, holiness is to be separated and set apart for God. Consecrated and set apart for him. When you think holiness, you may think splendor, purity, perfection, God in all of his glory. If you were to think right now, what is the one word you would use to describe who God is? I don't know if holy would be on your radar. But whatever word you use to describe who God is, is one word among millions of words that cannot capture the greatness of our God. He is the God in whom creation bows before. His presence demands a response. Yet here's what's kind of cool about the way holiness works in the Bible. The very first time the word holy is used is not about a a person being made holy. It's actually God not even saying how he is holy. It was a day that was made holy. The Sabbath day was made holy. The first time God uses the word holy is about a day teaching people how to take your hands off of life so that you can remember and be reminded that God keeps life going if you take your hands off. 
Because if we keep our hands on the wheel, we begin to think that we are more, have a lot more control than we have, right? The day was made holy. The last time holy is used in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, it's not about people being made holy, and it's not God saying how holy He is. In Revelation 22, it's a city that is made holy. It's the city of God, the redeemed people of God. It's what God, how God is restoring all things, that it is made holy, that God is moving all things to His holiness. In between that, in between a day that was made holy and a city that's made holy are all these examples about this God who has angels bowing before Him and elders who are falling on their faces and people who worship and sing out and cry out to the, to the holy God, the God who is above all things. Yet God, as holy as He is, His holiness, His purity, He is undefiled, He is perfect in every way. And in His holiness, He did not... Uh, set up life in a way where if a human being can be perfect too, they can get to God. But instead, God and what His holiness and all of His holiness, what He decided to do is that He was going to send His holiness and from His holiness, He's going to step into the mess of humanity, into the mess of life. So God in His holiness, sitting on a throne, didn't throw down a rope, ask you to grab it so He could pull you into His holiness. It's not a rope God threw down, it's himself he threw down to enter into the mess of life. We read in the Bible, it says, God made Jesus who had no sin to become sin so that we may become his righteousness. Holiness and becoming holy is not based on our effort or our knowledge. It's not based on works, our money, our power, our influence, what friends we have. It is solely based on the willingness of Jesus to take upon himself the sin of the world that Jesus had felt the impact of sin because he had been around it, but at the cross he felt the weight of sin upon his body. It's through him that we can pursue this life of holiness. Throughout the Bible you read about the most holy place, especially in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies. Only a high priest could go in there only once a year. And it's where sins were atoned for year after year. This had to happen. Something had to die. An animal had to die. Blood had to be sprinkled so the people could be forgiven from their sins. And it was only kind of temporary because next year, the next year you would have to come back and do it all over again. So what happens in the book of Hebrews, which is a book written to people who were backsliding in their faith. If you look in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. It says this, uh, verse 10 through 14. For God's will was for us to be made holy. By the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. It's a phrase that shows up in Hebrews all over the place. Once for all. One time for all. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day and day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering he made forever, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Isn't that good? Now listen, in verse 10 what it says is you have been made holy. But in verse 14 it says you are being made holy. And all of this is because of what Jesus accomplished through death, burial, and resurrection. That you don't have to worry today about whether sins are forgiven or not, or does Jesus have to come and die on a cross again because we have sinned a lot since, the, since 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross the first time. The power of the blood of Jesus is that within six hours, 
hanging on a cross. He took upon himself the sin of the whole world, nailing it to the cross, offering forgiveness and release of sin, release of bondage to all people. It's what Jesus accomplished. So verse 10 is... Uh, to use a couple of maybe more theological words, it is about justification. That what Jesus did has pronounced you as holy. Your identity has changed. You have been trans, uh, transformed. You have been given a new name. Jesus' work that he accomplished is now for you. It redefines you. You have been made holy. Verse 14 is not justification. It's about sanctification, that you are being made holy. You're in the process So what happens as a church, what happens as people if we only believe one of these and not the other? That it's not just that you have been made holy and now you're just waiting on the end and hopefully that will sustain you until Jesus comes back so you can be with him and you're also not in the process of being made holy where there's not a new identity that's already been given to you. That the way this works is when God looks at you through what Jesus has accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God sees you as sinless, so now it's time for us to become who we are. God has pronounced you and has said, you are a new person, now become who you are. This is how we are working out our transformation, our salvation uh, in this life. One person said it like this. He said, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. That heart work is hard work. And he's not talking about like you losing your salvation and leaning back in. It's that once you have been saved, believing that there's more that God is offering for you. That when it comes to confessing Jesus as Lord and being baptized and immersed into Christ, before you gain something, you lose something. Salvation, conversion, it's about surrendering loss, release, demotion. That we're giving it all to Jesus, everything we are. So I've wrestled with how to talk about holiness and how to talk about the holiness of God because I've got to capture this in one sermon. And I've just been, I've cried out to God and even this morning was crying out to him like, Lord, I just don't want to, I don't want to make holiness sound like something that's light or something people don't want to pursue and I just sense the Lord speaking over me. Hey, just tell people and remind them and try to lodge in their heart that holiness and the holy life, it, don't strive harder, but surrender more faithfully. That it's not about your efforts and what you're trying to do to be more holy. It's surrendering to the one who is holy. But let me give you three things that holiness is and then state three obstacles. Holiness is, number one, it's the pursuit of God. As we pursue God, it takes you speaking a no over some things before you speak a yes to some things. There's some things in your life you need to let go of to pursue a better life. Um, Even conversion. There are some places throughout the world today that when people are immersed into Christ, before they step into the waters to be immersed, they denounce the things in their life that they need to leave behind. Sins, maybe it's relationships. Emotions, unhealthy emotions, their past, their guilt, they speak, they speak them, denouncing them as they go into a new life. The pursuit of God is that God in all of his glory has said he wants us to be like him. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, be holy as God is holy. Be like Jesus, strive like Jesus, walk like Jesus. It's that we are called to try to mimic the heart of God, the movement of God, the rhythm of God. 
It's the best way to teach somebody how to do something, right? Isn't just to study about it, it's to watch how they do it and you do it. When I'm trying to teach my kids a skill or certain things, uh, the best way for me to teach them is, hey, watch me do it, and then you do what I do. Um, I had someone, uh, Sabrina, here in this church, a world-renowned opera singer, was giving me voice lessons, all right? Uh, Not so I would become an opera singer, uh, because I don't think that's going to happen. She was giving me voice lessons not so I could sing better, though I'm sure some of you would love to have that. She's giving me voice lessons to help me as a speaker, uh, a communicator, to take better care of my voice. We can strain our voices, if you haven't been able to notice. And one thing Sabrina would do is, it was all about breathing. And one thing she said is, I'm not just going to teach you how to do this. I want you to watch how I watch me, and then you do what I do. And God is saying, watch me, and then you do what I do. It's the pursuit of God. Number two, write this down. Sustained attention to the heart of God. One of the greatest lessons God has taught me over the last few years is to believe in the power of the short 15 to 30 seconds I have to center my heart in God throughout the day. Because there are times I enter into a phone call or a relationship or I'm out in public and I bump into someone in a moment, an opportunity arises for the kingdom of God to advance, and I don't have 30 minutes to sit before the Lord to prepare myself. I have a brief moment. And God has taught me that there is more power in my life and power in the kingdom when I invest that 15 to 30 seconds in the heart of God than I do in scrolling Twitter again to see what's going on in the world. That there's power in just centering our attention on God. You've heard me say it before. We live in a world where we're more distracted than we have ever been before. We are more exhausted than we've ever been before. And how can God speak a clear word into an exhausted, distracted heart? That we need to learn to sustain attention to God's heart. And third, and I think this is so important, is that holiness is world-affirming. It is not world-avoiding. Sometimes in our pursuit of holiness, we think of all the things we don't need to do, and it doesn't leave us with doing much. There was a time in my life that I said, I am no longer watching any more rated R movies. And it went great for about two years until the passion of the Christ came out. And what do you do when Jesus is the star of a rated R movie? So I decided to break my rated R commitment to, to see the passion of the Christ. But when it comes to holiness, and this is where the Pharisees really struggled, it's world affirming. That you do read places like in 1 John where it says friendship with the world is hatred towards God. But, and I'm not saying this wrong because John's saying something that's really true. That you have to be really careful how you navigate this life because sin is pulling you in. Yet at the same time you see how Paul and, and the church went into dark places to make friends and to be light. It's world affirming. It's believing that God loves people and wants people to be redeemed. It's world affirming, not world avoiding. Let me give you a few obstacles. One obstacle is that we got to take sin seriously. That there's no such thing as a sin in your life that doesn't have an impact on everyone else around you. Even the secret sin in your life has an impact on every other relationship around you. Because it has an impact on who you are as a person. We can't try to manage sin. It's about getting rid of sin. Number two, the obstacle is legalism. That when it comes to holiness, we can form these rules of what you don't do and what you do. 
legalism, I think, the way the church has become legalistic and fundamentalist about some things and their rigid thinking has probably made more atheists in the world than secular thinking, just pulling them away. It's how the church has sometimes driven people away because of our legalistic tendencies. And we've got to be careful that when we make a list of do's and don'ts that we don't lose the heart of the gospel and a pursuit of the heart of God. Thirdly is perfectionism. And I think this is really important for people who grew up in a church that didn't really work out like the works-based righteousness very well, that there are still maybe some of you who think that because of your works, it was, it's what appeases God or what, what saves you. And often what can happen is we read stuff like, be holy as your God is holy, and we don't live up to it, and then we are filled with guilt, and then guilt weighs us down, and we're really slow of walking out this life with God because we can't pursue it the way we wish we could pursue it. You've got to give up perfectionism and trust in the one who is perfect. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says this. And let me end with this. Romans 5, verse 20. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Which is a great thought, right? The more sin increased, the more God's grace increased. So just as sin ruled over all people and it brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it anymore? And then the rest of Romans 6 is how as baptized people, you were called to this righteous holy life. I don't know how some of you think about God today. I don't know if there's some of you in here that you think what God is doing is he may be pointing his finger at you saying, how, how could you come to church today when you committed the kind of sin you did last night? Or why are you here when you've been living a certain kind of way? And what I want you to see is that the hand of God is always reaching out to humanity, whether people are saved or not, inviting them into something greater. Inviting the lost to come into a relationship with Jesus. Inviting those who have been found to come into deeper places with God. Come into a more holy place with God. It was 20 years ago, almost this week, that I was at a church camp to transform my life. Open me up to the power of discipleship and grace and forgiveness like never before. In the last day of the camp, I was dealing with a lot of those emotions of how can God love me because of some of the things I've done? Why would God ever want to use me because of the the mistakes I've made in my life. And I remember a teacher, he got alone with me one-on-one, and he said, look, I want you to think about life like this. When you were teaching a young child to walk, often what happens is the parent will take the kid's hands in its fingers, and the parent will walk that child. And then the child will kind of lose its balance and will fall, and, and no parent will kick the kid. They'll say, Who, how dare you? It's not that hard. Do you see me walk? Why can't you walk? that the parent picks him back up and keeps going. And so it is with God. We stumble and we fall, and God's there picking us back up, keeping us going. If you need the prayers of the church today, if you are a prayer leader, will you go to your places? There are people here to receive you. If this is the day you want to give your life to Jesus and confess him as Lord and be baptized into Christ, come and join me up here in the front. We would love to celebrate with you today. And we stand as a church and let's sing a couple of songs.